Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Welcome to the Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. Nana Owusu. Dr. Owusu, welcome. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Scott. I'm pleasure to, pleasure to be here. I'm glad that, uh, we were able to do this together. It's an absolute thrill to conduct my first interview with an OD from Canada. <laughs> we're, you know, we're, maybe we're not as exciting as, as you're making us sound, but, uh, but we're warm, surprisingly warm for, for uh, this time of year. And so I'll probably be a little bit more cheerful than I might have been otherwise. <laughs> Tell me about this, the state of optometry there in the COVID era. Uh, is there anything that would be different than what docs are experiencing in the States? Uh, you know, it's probably quite similar. I'd say that uh, we're all going through our challenges. Many of us as business owners are trying to navigate the idea of, do you have the appropriate amount of PPE for yourself, for your staff, for your patients, um, juggling and balancing schedules to ensure that you're not exceeding the capacity that you should, you know, our, where we live, our province has, has given some pretty clear guidelines as to, as to how many people we should be able to see in a day or, or at a time, I should say. Um, I'm, I'm the vice president of our provincial association. And so we spend a lot of time late evenings exchanging emails as our governments change rules every 15 minutes, we have to change policy as well. Um, so, so it's, it's been a bit of a challenge, but you know, you navigate it as best you can to ensure that you're comfortable, your staff are comfortable and everybody's healthy. Is it a provincial by a province by province matter uh, or are there national guidelines handed down? As you know, here's sort of national guidelines, CDC, but then each state has kind of invoked their own as as appropriate standards. Is it similar there? Yeah, very similar. You know, there are national guidelines, but uh, every province has its provincial health authority that sort of uh, dictates how we might handle things in our individual provinces. Where we are, we're finding that we've been, we've been on a bit of a roller coaster where we had, as recently as August, we had one active case of COVID uh, in our province and we thought we were just dancing. And that has absolutely skyrocketed in the last uh, few months. And so it's changed the rules a little bit, but, but yeah, our province has done a, I'll say a reasonable job of ensuring that we've kept the public safe, so. Got it. Well, yeah. let's go to your family. Uh, your yeah. parents started their lives in Ghana. Tell me about your parents. Yeah, so so I come from a pretty interesting family, a uh, family of three, which is not typical for an African family, especially from Ghana. Um, my parents were very much focused on education. Uh, education was everything. They were both educated in Ghana um, and then decided to move to North America in search of a better life for me. My, my mother was pregnant with me and they said, hey, we're going to move to, actually, they had an opportunity to either go to Sydney, Australia, or Toronto, Ontario. Um, in the winters, I often think to myself, you, you should have picked Sydney, but, but uh, they picked Toronto. And I think that it was because University of Toronto and University of Ghana are sister schools. And so I think there was a bit of a connection there, and they understood oh. that. Um, they ended up moving to Toronto and pursued more education. And, and like I said, uh, it's the promised land, right, being in North America. And so they, they wanted to see if they could find something better for me. And, and, and life in Ghana is good, but, but certainly, is, even though that is probably the most developed of the African countries, it is still a third world country. Uh, and, and Canada certainly offers more opportunity in terms of education and advancement, uh, or at least it did 
way back then. I won't say how old I am, but, but back then, uh, it did offer that, that opportunity that may be a little bit harder to find in Ghana. So It's interesting. I'm doing business right now, uh, some coaching with a fellow from San Francisco who was born and raised in Ghana and has been in the United States for a number of decades. And he's there right now living with his dad, doing some business. And he was telling me about electronic currency that really just flows over telephones yeah. and that the largest telecom company is essentially the nation's largest bank. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. It's unbelievable. You know, some of the advancements that I've seen out of Ghana in the last, I'll say, five years have just been unbelievable. Um, I think that I think that they're, I'll say, catching up. You know, you know, there was there was a time when when the Western world was viewed as being completely ahead of, of where they were. But in recent years, the, the, the gap is closing and it's closing quickly. Uh, like I said, a lot of that is rooted in education, of course. You know, Ghana was a British colony, so there are a lot of people who, who left, went to Europe, a lot of Ghanaians in London, England in particular, and then who brought their knowledge and education back. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of tremendous things that are happening there, and that being one of them. So I know that your mom was a huge influence on you, and you literally told me a story about how you found out about getting an ICO. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, so so I'll, I guess I'll back up. So since childhood, my, my mother's probably only dream was to be able to say that one day people would call her son doctor. Uh, and so, and everything she did was with that in mind. And so if she could push, if she could work extra hours, if she could... Uh, stay up later and do whatever she needed to do, help me with my homework, she was going to do it to make sure that I got there. Uh, so in the early 2000s, she had been diagnosed with breast cancer, and it was uh, it was a challenging time for the family, you know, but uh, she, she was a fighter, and so she, she fought through it. She did relatively well. Unfortunately, she had to deal with a second bout of it, um, and things took a bit of a turn. And so I was in school pursuing... Uh, one of my degrees in Ontario, and she got sick, so I moved back to Edmonton. I left school, I moved back to Edmonton, uh, I let all my professors know, and uh, I, I, I battled through it at home with her, you know, I, I helped her out every day to try to try to maintain, and long story short, um, I ended up going back to Ontario, uh, I did all of my exams, my, all of my midterms, all of my final exams, and all of my interviews for optometry school and medical school over a period of like two to three weeks, uh, and it was, it was a grind, it was grueling, but, but similar to how she had pushed so hard for me, you know, she was, she was my shining star. I was going to push equally hard to achieve this goal for her. So, so we had our conversation the day I found out I got into ICO was the day I found out I got into McMaster Medical School as well. And I was over the moon, called my mom, had to tell her about it. And she was just, I, I could tell in her voice, just how relieved she was, you know, there was, that was all she ever wanted. Um, and then that was it. That was our last conversation. I told her that I loved her and she told me she loved me, how proud she was. And that was it. Um, my dad and my aunt who was visiting at the time from Ghana called to tell me that um, they felt that she'd been hanging on just waiting for that news. You know, that was that was all she wanted to hear. And so so every every time there was a tough moment, even through school, where I had to kind of think, oh, I don't know if I can push through this. I, I just had to look at her picture and sort of remember who got me there and, and what I needed to do to get through it. So, yeah. Awesome story. And, and four degrees. Yeah. I was a sucker for punishment. <laughs> and so it's, I, I went to school for a little while. I mean, you took this, I'm going to do this for my mom to the end. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be proud. 
So you're an only child, but you have tons of cousins. You yeah. have this very large family. Um, any interesting stories in there? Yeah. So it's uh, my, my, as I said, being a, a, an only kid in an African family is not typical at all. Um, my mom has many siblings and each of her siblings had five to 14 kids. And so I have a massive family and that's just her side. My dad's side is equally as large. Um, got some young up and comers. I played football for many years. Football was my passion outside of this. And, and um, I've got a, a young cousin who is entering the NFL draft this year. So I'm excited to see how things work out. He was at Virginia Tech and he transferred to Old Dominion. He's a wide receiver, big guy. Um, I'm going to hold that I was faster than he is. I don't think that's the case anymore, but but, uh, but I'm going to stick to that and, and there's no arguing there. Um, but yeah, so I'm excited to see how he does. Um, my dad is an interesting guy as well. You know, he's, he's another person who chased education and, and went from a degree in political science and, and uh, he was months from completing his PhD. But again, in, in search and opportunity, he decided he was going to, there were these newspaper ads way back when in Canada that said, move to Alberta, We'll move your family here, $70,000, no questions asked. It was in the early 80s, he thought, well, good Lord, I, I, how can I turn that down? So he, he had three months to, before he was going to defend, and he said, you know, we're, we're, we're struggling, we're barely getting through this, I'm moving to Alberta. And so he, he left, he moved to Alberta, checked out the lay of the land, said it was good, called for us, and about three or four months later, we were moving to Edmonton, so that's where I grew up. I uh, moved there when I was about five years old, and uh, the rest is history. He took that political science degree and somehow parlayed it into a, a life in, um, well, he ran a juvenile lockup unit. Um, he worked in, in Edmonton Public Schools uh, as a social worker. Um, he worked in child psych. I shouldn't say worked. He works. He's, he's well into his 70s, but he's got more energy than I will ever have. And uh, he's, he's now down to casual. He retired about four times, and, and now he's working casually. And he's working in child psych at one of the hospitals in Edmonton and loves what he does. He's really good at what he does. He's, he's probably the most personable guy I think I've ever met. You know, nobody, he can't enter a room without you knowing that he's there. I, I tend to say he's, he's Santa Claus with darker skin. You know, that's, and everybody's happy to see him. Yeah, you said he's a really happy man. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Going anywhere with him is difficult because there's there's nobody who walks by who isn't a friend. Whether he's met them or not, everybody's a friend. So, what a wonderful way to live life. And you yeah, have an absolutely. uncle who is you had an uncle who is some sort of government ambassador. Yeah. So, so actually, my one of my mother's uncles uh, is the he was Ghana's ambassador to China and Ghana's ambassador to the United States. And so, really interesting guy. Last time I was in Ghana, we, we sat down, he was showing his pictures, shaking hands with the Queen and talking to JFK and, you know, I mean, just all, all sorts of pictures. We had a really interesting conversation where I asked him how many countries he had visited and, and he said uh, it'd be a lot easier for him to tell me the countries that he had. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, boy, that's incredible. He said, no, but, you know, there's time for you because he said he never left Ghana until he was 27 years old. Um, and, and after that, he visited nearly every country in the world and has made friends and colleagues all over the world. And it, it, incredibly, the stories that he has to share are just unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, I hope to follow in his footsteps. I'd like to see much of this world as well. So, 
That's awesome. Yeah. And when I ask people about how they became an optometrist, I often get a really interesting story. And you literally said it was by accident. Yeah. <laughs> you had a very, a very young ambition to get into some form of medicine. Tell me about how that all sort of spun up. Yeah, so it, it absolutely was an accident. Um, so I guess I brought the, I was one of those odd kids who would have also said, probably from brainwashing from my parents, that I was going to be a doctor um, by age seven. I, I knew it. That was it. Uh, there was, there was, I never deviated from it. I never, I had no interest in being a, a fireman or anything else. Like most of my friends, I was going to be a doctor. Um, I also would have said that I was going to play football, actually. Those were the two things. But but being a doctor was, was it. And, and there was a guy who played for the Edmonton Oilers at the time who was, also a family physician. And so I wanted to be like him. I wanted to do both and play professional sports and also be a doctor. Um, but, but yeah, as the years passed, I ended up meeting the, a good friend whose father was the chief of cardiac surgery at the University of Alberta. Um, and I'll, I'll say I made the mistake of telling him that I think I, I thought I might want to be a heart surgeon. And so he hooked his claws into me and, and, uh, and that was it. So I spent a lot of time with him, a lot of time doing research. Um, and, and it was, it was wonderful. It was a great experience. My challenge was that I had blinders. If you asked me what medicine was, I would have said medicine equals cardiac surgery and there was nothing else. Um, and it was, and it's a wonderful field, a wonderful profession, but I remember having a conversation with his wife, my buddy's mother. And, and you know, he was, my friend was off in McGill, but they were the cool family. So we would go visit his parents when he was off in school, because they were just such a great family to talk to. And his mom told me that. She was a single mother until her oldest was 15 because she loved their life. Everything was wonderful, but her husband was dedicated to the hospital and to his patients. And that comment, I could never shake that comment. So, so I applied to medical school and deferred it. And then they asked, are you coming? And I said, nope. And I, I, I said, I'm not coming. I'm not ready for that. I applied again and deferred it again. Um, and so that happened about four times where I would get in and say, no, no, I'm, I'm not coming. I'm not ready. So finally one day I kind of stopped. And, and then in the meantime, I did my master's and I did another degree. And so there's gotta be something that's slowing me down here. Like, what is it that's telling me not to go? Cause from age seven, I said, I was going to do this. And it was just that conversation that I had with Dr. Koshal's wife that kept replaying in my mind. And I, and family, like I said, is one of the most important things in my life. And, and I, you know, I wanted to be there. As a part of my kid's life one day so so and and you absolutely can in cardiac surgery if you're fortunate if you've got the right partner but it's challenging there's no doubt um and there are other aspects of medicine but like i said that's just not where my head was so i discovered optometry you won't believe this i actually discovered optometry um i accidentally clicked on a pop-up that had a list of links to some strange browser and arbo the association of regulatory board of optometry was one of the things on that on that first page so i read it i i was i was actually injured during from football season uh, in university and sitting down feeling sorry for myself so i was just clicking these links and i wow. clicked this pop-up accident and i read it and within a few weeks i said hey i think this might be it i went and i told one of my buddies i, I got on my crutches and i went and I told one of my buddies hey i think this is interesting and i've got a friend who actually went to ico and did optometry and i dismissed it as a possibility for me it wasn't something i was really interested in but after I read more about it and learned more about the field and what how it was evolving into being more than just glasses, but caring for patients. And there was a bit of, I read a little bit about how you could be a business or you could work in hospitals and sports teams and the diversity of, of the scope of practice really appealed to me. Um, so I took a shot, I, I applied and next thing you know, I was making the decision to do that instead of go to medical school and 
few uh, here we are. This is later. Here I am. So, you know, isn't there a lineman for the Kansas City Chiefs that's a physician and a Canadian in Canada and uh, gave this year up to care for patients? That's right. Yeah, that's right. So, so yeah, you've touched on my passion. So, I'm not a Chiefs fan. I will tell you, but I do respect <laughs> that guy greatly. It's, it's uh, he's yeah, he's a physician. He's from Quebec and. He, you know, the NFL players this year were given the option to opt out if they chose to, if they didn't feel comfortable with protocol that was going to be followed or what have you. And he gave this unbelievable speech about how he felt that it was his responsibility to care for his. At the time, Quebec was doing, I'll say, relatively poorly with their COVID numbers. And he said, it is my responsibility to take my skill set and help those who need me. Um, this is what I was born to do. Football will be here, hopefully in the future. And if not, my civic responsibility is to help the people around me. So he left and, and he's caring for people in, in Quebec and, and I applaud him for it. That's a tough decision to me to, to reach that ultimate dream that he had of playing in the NFL and then saying, you know, see ya, I'm not doing it. <laughs> that, that's a, that's gotta be a tough decision. And I, but I think it's, he's gotta be an incredible guy to do it. There've been a handful of physicians in the NFL and, and a couple of who are Canadian. So it's, it's nice to see the success. It would have been nice to see you do do both, but I, I think that your optometry success uh, speaks for itself. I'm glad you got focused. You met your yeah. wife as part of your ICO interview process? Yeah, so we met on our interview day, actually, uh, at ICO. <laughs> and, uh, it was, I wonder how uh, many of those there are. That's interesting. Going. I'm it, sorry. <laughs> it, it, no, that's okay. I'm sure it doesn't happen that often. But, uh, yeah, we met on our interview day. There were four of us who interviewed that day. Um, we met, uh, interestingly enough, we were both seeing other people at the time, and uh, but but we had this connection immediately. She was my best friend. She is my best friend, um, and so we we remained very good friends through that summer after the interview. Uh, we stayed in contact, sort of chatting about, hey, what are you going to do? Are you going to school in Chicago? Or are you going somewhere else? Um, we've each been admitted to each of the schools we'd applied to, and coincidentally, both made a decision to go to ICO. We both loved what the program had to offer. So um, I was excited, she was excited that we were gonna know somebody, another another Canadian who was gonna be in the in uh, in the class. And so so we, like I said, we sat together right away. We were very good friends and, and ended up reaching a point where we realized this is who we should probably, we needed to be together. It, it just made sense. I'll say, I realized it probably a lot sooner than she did. She took a little bit of convincing, but uh, I eventually I eventually got her there. I would say, I should write a book. I think I'm the only person who's ever broken out of the friend zone, and uh, but I did it successfully. And so now we're married, we've got three kids, and she's actually practicing as we speak in the, in the exam room across the hall. Wow, so you do practice together. We do, yeah. So we've got three clinics together that we own here in Winnipeg, and we own another one in Edmonton, where I grew up, um, that we recently opened. And uh, so we do practice together. It's rare that our paths cross during the day. We work together maybe once or twice a month. Um, we just kind of have our role within the practice, but uh, but we enjoy it when we do. You know, it's nice to have somebody who you can drive to work with and bounce ideas off of and sit on the couch and talk about challenging cases or, you know, make business decisions together. So it's, it's fun to work with her. Now, are both of you involved in the kids, say, sports, arts, music, whatever? What, what are they busy doing? Yeah, so so it's, well, with COVID, it's a little bit challenging right now. But, I mean, they're Canadian-born, so they're hockey players. You know, both uh, our, our two oldest kids play hockey. Our youngest is only three years old. And so, but he is, he, he <laughs> the other two may not like me saying this, but the youngest is the athlete of the family. He, he will 
be up there soon and I will not be able to stop him. He's, he's, uh, he's a big guy. <laughs> he's being three. He doesn't recognize that he's four years younger than the next. He thinks he's in there. So, uh, but they play hockey. My daughter was in a Ninja Warrior class, which was pretty cool. Wow. Um, she plays violin. He plays piano. Um, she dances. He plays baseball. So, yeah, we, we try to keep them busy. You know, sports were a big part of my life. I played over, over a period of time up to five sports through high school, and my wife played rugby, and, uh, you know, she's, she ran track. I ran track. And so sports are a big part of our lives as a family, and so we, we try to get out there and, and run with them a little bit. As long as I'm still more athletic than them, I'll continue to do it. Once they surpass me, I might have to, to step back a little bit, but we'll see how it goes. What do you translate from being an athlete and a competitive athlete to optometry? I've talked to oh. people from all different walks. And, you know, there are some businesses that really focus on people who are athletes. I mean, Enterprise Rental Car hires NCAA, mm -hmm. NCAA athletes for their frontline work to start. Right. And uh, Stryker, one of the orthopedic companies, uh, hires athletes for orthopedic, you know, uh, work because they can identify with it. What, what do we know that we do because optometry is not full contact what, what, what do we learn there because i think i think that there's a, an awful lot of people that are athletic that are in optometry yeah absolutely you know i, I mean i think something that has to do with the drive like as a business owner my my drive to continue to push is rooted in my athletic career you know way back when i was getting up early and i'd be training running track whatever it was at five in the morning and I had visions of my competitors in my head. In fact, I used to have photos of my competitors. Similarly, through optometry school, that's how I motivated myself through school. I, I would, I would, and people didn't know this, but I would target, well, to my knowledge, that guy's got the best grades in the class, so I'm catching this guy. And I would keep, I would keep their pictures around to motivate me uh, to work harder because I wanted to be as good as them. And similar as a business owner, I, I, I look at some of these, some of the best businesses out there, some of the largest businesses out there, and I'm regularly looking at how they run their practices, whether it's optometry practices, medical practices, or otherwise, what are they doing that I'm not doing? And, and those hours in the evening when I'm not sleeping, I'm trying to understand what our world's business leaders are doing so I can try to attain what they're attaining. So I, I think it's a lot of it has to do with that drive to achieve. You know, I, I want I want more. I heard, and I, I mean, this example is rooted more in, in finance, but I remember years ago, I heard somebody ask Warren Buffett, you know, you have all the money in the world. How much money is enough? And his answer was more, right? And, and, and for me, it's not so much about the money. My thought, though, is when you ask me, what are you trying to achieve? My answer is more. I, I, I don't know what that ultimate or final goal is, but I just know that whatever I've accomplished, I'm proud of it. I'm happy with the successes, but I want more. I want to create um, an example for my children like my parents did for me. Um, I want to create an example for other young students um, maybe other young students who look like me, who may not otherwise have a role model who, who, who can direct them into a profession like this. And so, so, so I daily use my athletic past to, to drive me towards more. It's always just looking for more. So you've gotten more practices as you've gone along. You and your wife are on this will grow. There are some docs listening to this who have already gotten to 10 locations who you might want to learn from, but there's a whole lot more that are at one or two that aren't sure that it's worth the time or the effort. Tell me a little bit about what's, I mean, I know wanting more is it, but what drove <laughs> you to sort of go to the next level? Because I, I don't think you're done if I've heard you right in some other <laughs> conversations. You, you would like to grow more. 
yeah. why and and what what's how hard is that it's challenging to say the least it's definitely challenging but you know i mean every, anything worth having in life is challenging you know and so so you can't you can't let you can't let difficulty or challenge slow you down it's 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 a door to kick down as i see it and so um but why it's you know First of all, I think that we have a wonderful profession, and I think that we've got the opportunity to educate and to 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 help a lot of people who otherwise may not be able to be helped um, or may not understand why they need to be helped. I think that our profession is involved in such a way that we can offer a level of care and service to patients that many of them aren't even aware of. And it's not until they come into the exam room or until they're leaving the exam room that they say, wow, I had no idea that you knew all of this or that you could see all of this or you could help me in these ways. And so part of me as a community servant, if I can help and serve as many different communities as I can, I, I would love to. That's, I, I think that's once upon a time, I believe we were all here on this earth, believing that we should be helping each other. And over some years, maybe some have lost sight of that. And so if I can at least be an example to one other person, even just one other person, I think that that's helpful. We can, if we can all sort of pay forward and help each other, then that's, that's what I wanna do. But beyond just helping the patient, the patients are incredibly important, but. I have staff who I'd like to try to mentor, staff who are trying to become optometry students one day and optometrists ultimately, staff who are we're putting them through the optician program, staff who are putting through the medical office administrative assistant program. Um, young high school high school students who I speak to, I spoke to a high school student just this morning. You know, I I I I see it as part of my role. If you have the ability to attain a skill set and a level of knowledge that you can share, it's your responsibility to share it. But again, not just on that level of patients, but to help those coming up after us. You know, I had Dr. Koshal as a mentor in cardiac surgery. You know, I worked in a burn surgery lab and did cell biology research for a burn surgeon, uh, Dr. Edward Treasure, an absolute genius. And I learned more spending minutes talking to him than, than you know, I might have otherwise in a lifetime. You know, I'm just a brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, I had mentors in this field in optometry who, who, I wrote down everything they said about business. You know, I had mentors even when I was at ICO. And I think that <clears throat> I was fortunate to have that opportunity to have a variety of people who could teach me in a number of different ways. So if, if I can expand my practice um, for the sake of serving the community, but for the sake of helping those around as well in the community who might say, hey, that guy's doing something interesting. I wonder if I can do that. Well, that's who I want to be. I want to I wanna help those young people who, who um, may not have the guidance. You know, or may not have the opportunity to find it on their own. If I can be that, I'll say beacon or that opportunity for them to to find more, then that's what I want to do. How does the Canadian system of practicing and being compensated differ? I think most people look at it in that general, you know, socialized medicine approach. But maybe you could shine a little more detail on on what it's like to be a business owner there, from compensation models to anything else. That might be different about how you practice and how you run your business then. Yeah. So so it's it's quite there are some strong similarities, but it's quite different in terms of earning. Um similarities just in that it would cost a similar amount of money to acquire a space or lease a space if you choose, um, to build a practice out if you're doing it from from scratch. That that would all be similar. You know, acquiring finances from the bank, that's all pretty much the same. Um but in terms of being compensated, it is quite different. So yes, we have a socialized medical system here, but unfortunately, optometry 
is not under the umbrella of that being deemed as, as, as I'll say, medically necessary. So what that means is we, we and, and I'll qualify that statement by saying parts of optometry are, the parts are not. If somebody comes in for a basic refraction, um, they just need glasses, your glasses are not covered under our provincial healthcare system. Um, that said, we, we do have third-party insurances that are a Blue Cross, for example. Um, we've got many who people will pay into that through their through their work, uh, or their employers will pay into that, and then they will have some amount of coverage. Our provincial our provincial healthcare will often cover parts of your examination. So, say somebody's a diabetic, there will be some coverage for you. Um, seniors, they will have some coverage. If you've got hypertensive retinopathy, inflammation in the eye, retinal detachments, foreign bodies, things of that sort, those types of things will be covered for you, at least partially. But but depending on the province you're in, sometimes completely. Um, but the rest of your exam will either have to be paid for out of pocket or through your third-party insurance provider. And so while we don't have groups like VSP, for example, um, we've got insurance providers who have nothing to do with the profession. They just will offer vision coverage to an extent. Um, and because there's such a wide range of coverage options for patients, we're in a position where in your province, you have to quickly gain a good understanding of what that range might be so you're not pricing anybody out of, of your practice. Um, but you also have to be able to show value. You, you, we don't really have in Canada uh, the, 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 you know, I examined two pairs for $69.99. That, that doesn't yet exist. Um, and I say yet because it, it could happen one day. Absolutely could happen one day. Um, but I think that those similar to, you know, I watched, I have to say, I watched your interview with, with Dr. Ramsey and, and I think he said it very well. While that may exist, that doesn't concern, I'll speak for myself, that doesn't concern me at all. It, it may happen one day um, that, that we have these groups who come in and sort of, um, and, and I won't use my word, but you'll often hear people will say, we'll sort of devalue the eye exam um, by, by really promoting the glasses end of it and a little bit less on the health side of it that we fought for for so long to, to establish as a part of what we do. Um, that doesn't concern me. I think that if you can differentiate yourself, you're going to do just fine. And so, so again, you have to understand how we're going to be compensated and you have to understand what value you bring your, to your patients. And that's, at the end of the day, that is very similar to the United States. It's, it's just done through a slightly different mechanism. Are provincial laws different in scope of practice like state laws are in the United States? Yes, absolutely. So when we, when we moved back to Manitoba, so we live in Winnipeg, Manitoba, where my wife is from. When we moved back here, we could actually not even prescribe um, medications. We we could refract. We could use therapeutics, but uh, or sorry, we could not use, yet use that therapeutics. We could only use diagnostics. Um, and so that was a that was a bit of a tough pill to swallow. Honestly, you know, coming back from the United States, we were living in Florida, and you know, I had made some efforts to help out with you know. Uh, some people who I knew who were pushing for orals, et cetera. And then I moved back to a place where I could use diagnostics and diagnostics only. I made the best of it. You know, we, we learned quickly that we had to establish ourselves. So we made inroads with every family physician in the area who wanted nothing to do with the eye, but had no choice. <laughs> the emergency physicians in the area who wanted nothing to do with the eye, but they had no choice. I would have patients and I would send them the patient. I would write out essentially a prescription and say, this is what the patient needs. This is the dose that they need. This is the amount of time for which they will need to be followed. You can write the prescription and send them back and I will take care of it because we are only limited by our provincial scope. 
Um, once this changes, I will handle it. And we that's how we grew. That's how we established ourselves. We, we, we developed these strong relationships with all sorts of different medical professionals who said, well, great, you take care of it. I don't know anything about the eye or I don't want to touch the eye, so you deal with it. Um, and I'll just write the prescription anytime you tell me that it's necessary because I trust your expertise. And so, so yeah, every province is, is a little bit different. Some are a little bit more progressive than others, but we are approaching a time when we will be closer to uniform as we, as we now achieve greater heights than we had, say, 15 years ago. Is there a commitment to pediatric care? You know, the American Optometric Association has the infancy program that sort of promotes early starts uh, for comprehensive eye care. What's it like on the younger end? Uh, any differences there or equal? Yeah, very, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, very similar to the infancy program. There's a, there's a program here in Manitoba called IC I Learn. Um, and it's, and it's to, to have young students have an eye exam, at least by kindergarten. Um, and it's documented and the information is shared. The school will, will provide these forms and the information is shared with the families, the pediatrician, we'll keep copies for ourselves. And it's really just to promote the idea or, or the importance of an eye exam at, early, at an early age. Um, we've, we've, our, one of our most recent clinics that we opened is, is um, two floors below the largest pediatric group in the in the city um, and we did that because we see a lot of children and I think that there are a lot of optometrists who are recognizing that I mean from a from a standpoint of growing your practice children come with caregivers they come with parents aunts uncles sisters brothers cousins and so so from that perspective it's very valuable but beyond that to to really make children understand the importance of an eye exam at an early age, similar to how the dentists have, my children will tell you, you get your teeth cleaned every six months and they, they don't need to hear from me. They know that the dentists have done a fantastic job of making our children understand that. And in turn, the adults will then understand that and these children will grow to be adults and share with their kids. So the profession advances. The same thing is slowly happening here. I think we're a little bit late, you know, as I would say compared to the dentists, but I think we're doing a good job of pushing it similar to what you're seeing in, in America. So there are two optometry schools in Canada? Yes, yes. So University of Waterloo and one in Montreal, which is completely in French. Oh, is it really? Okay. That's right. Oh, so sense. one English-speaking school in the country. Do, do those schools mostly have, I mean, you're not a representative for them, but do they mostly have representation of students from Canada? Yeah, yeah, they do. So, so I'd, be, I'd be surprised that they, I would imagine that there probably wouldn't be any American students at all, given how many schools there are in the United States. They, they might get the odd one here or there, I'm not certain of that, but but they would have, um, I'll say the stronghold on most of the students who who are coming up through their undergraduate degrees in, in Canada will generally apply to Waterloo, as I did, you know, I applied mm -hmm. to Waterloo. Um, it's, it's, and as you know, schools like ICO, schools like NECO, a lot of schools that are closer to the border, I guess, um, have a very strong Canadian contingent, you know, ICO being approximately 20%. And for me, the decision was made to, to go down south, um, not because of any issue at Waterloo. Waterloo is a fantastic school and they provide a great education, but it was just the strength of the academic program and also the strength of the clinical program that ICO offers that made me decide to go down south. Um, but that said, many of the Canadians, I, I think, do, do choose to at least apply to Waterloo, but because it's the only English-speaking school, we end up in a position where I believe they're somewhere in the area of 70 or 75 in a class. 
And so for a country of 35 million people, that's a very, that's a very competitive pot. It's a very, it's a very limited group of people who can end up yeah. going if they're interested. So, so a lot of students do end up in the United States, um, some by choice and, and some just for not having the opportunity. You know, we met through our work for ICO. Obviously, we've talked about this a little bit now, that that's where you went, that's where I went. And one of the things that immediately happened after I joined the group, that you already been around, and I heard about your contributions to a variety of different very important groups. I mean, you were, you're giving there too. And I, I, would, I would like to use your story to encourage other ODs that are listening. Um, as much as it can be hard sometimes to think about offering our time to optometric organizations, I think our universities, particularly our schools of optometry, deserve some of our expertise. And I'm really impressed by what you've co contributed. And, and you have been part of an initiative that a number of schools are doing. And I think the positive outcomes of American social justice and racism reviews has been a review of academic diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so tell me a little bit about what you've been involved with at ICO in form of starting to deliver uh, some oversight and programming around it. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this is something that was important to me, as I alluded to earlier, you know, there, growing up, I didn't have a lot of examples of, of role models outside of my home who looked like me. Um, and it's not that they have to look like you. I wasn't necessarily, or, or look like anyone individual. I wasn't necessarily seeking that, but there is a, there is a, there's a connection that that you can't help but have. I'll tell you, people people laugh when they hear this, and it may sound funny, but I had a connection, seeing that it was even just a possibility, watching the Cosby Show, you know, seeing a family where there is a a black doctor and a black lawyer with young children who have all the same challenges that we would all have in life, but were able to attain a level of success. Funny as that might sound, that was one of the few examples that I had around me that I could um, aim for or strive to achieve. And so, so I know that that doesn't only apply to me. I mean, there's, there's, it's well documented. The, the representation of people of color across medical professional programs, specifically optometry, is, is very low. And it doesn't accurately reflect the population of North America. Um, and, and I think that you know, the immediate argument I always hear is, well, we always want to have the most qualified students. And so regardless of color, race, creed, it, it shouldn't matter. You just get the most qualified. And I don't disagree with that. I think the most qualified people need to be there. But I also believe that there are many qualified people who are just not aware of the program or who have never had any guidance to look through these programs. I also think that it reflects on um, there's this, there's a very obvious disparity in healthcare across the United States in different, I'll say, social groups and ethnic groups. And, and I think that some of this can be bridged by having the having representation of, of people of color of all backgrounds. So, so to answer your question, I'll say my long answer to your question is I I saw that I see this need. Uh, this need is not new. It's been around <laughs> since the dawn of time. It didn't just start when I was young. And so when I came to ICO, back to ICO, you know, on the alumni council and on the board of trustees, one of my thoughts was there is absolutely opportunity for us to make improvements here. And I'll say the student voice at ICO particularly, and I'm sure this reflects all schools, is very loud. Uh, this generation is unbelievable in that they nothing nothing escapes them nothing gets past them and they see the i'll say inequities that that exist and they're not happy about it um and so so i saw an opportunity to at least start raising more money 
um, for the sake of scholarshiping, for the sake of cultural competency training, for the sake of bringing the college to a position where students, staff, faculty, leadership, and most importantly, patients could feel comfortable with examinations that they were having. I, I could tell you stories all day of experiences that I had in the clinic where, where people, comments would be made or things would be said about, about patients of, I'll say particularly black patients. At ICO, ICO is in the south side of Chicago. Chicago, if I'm not mistaken, is approximately 33% black. Huge African-American population, black population in that clinic. And, and I would hear comments where people clearly just didn't know how to relate to these patients. And so, so with maybe no ill or malintent, it's got to be a challenge to care for somebody that you can't relate to when you may not understand what they're trying to explain to you, or they may not understand the message you're trying to deliver. And then we end up with these patients who are lost to follow up or they were lost to care. So, so my thought was, well, this has to start at the student level. If we can make students interested or entice them to enter this field, then maybe we can have a more diverse faculty. Maybe then we can have a more diverse leadership team. And maybe we can then provide care to a side of the population who deserves it equally, just as everybody else does. So, so I, was, I was partially responsible for a, um, a fundraising event that we did at ICO where we raised um, some $70,000 in a relatively short period of time to, to provide more scholarship opportunity for people of color, um, to some black students, to, and um, I'll say entice them again to consider the profession of optometry, um, those who are most qualified. And, and, I, and I'm really happy with the effort thus far. Now we've sort of turned that into a, um, I'm going to be chairing the diversity, equity and inclusion committee that is newly formed that I, I'll say I sort of banged on the door a little bit until, until I was heard. I really, I, I see a need. There, there's absolutely a need for a committee of sorts um, at the board level. Um, and in turn, there needs to be, uh, there's currently a task force, but there needs to be some accountability within the college as well. And again, this doesn't just apply to ICO, this applies to all medical professional programs. And so I'm happy to have an opportunity to, to be the first to start this, this, this board level committee um, in order that we might see some positive change. Um, it's, it's needed, it's necessary. And I think it's only gonna make America a better place. You know, in light of the events that have happened in the summer that people often reference, they're terrible events, of course, they break our heart, but they're not new. Um, and, and I think what they really highlighted for a lot of people is they have existed in, in, in many ways for, for many, many years. It's, it's unfortunately woven into the fabric of our culture. And if we're going to make changes and be an anti-racist society, it's going to have to happen at all levels. And where better than our medical professionals who can be a positive example for other young people who may want to achieve, but also for patients who come in and say, wow, you know what? I hear it every day. I've never had a black doctor before. This is the first for me. It's kind of cool, you know? And, and it, I, I want it to come to a point where it's no longer a shock or a surprise because we are all capable, uh, people of all colors. I'd like to see it be, I'll say, an even playing field for all and equal opportunity for all. Yeah, from your words to, from your mouth to so many ears, I, I lived the experience you speak about. I uh, grew up in a small town. And, and I, before I say this, I want to appeal to those that listen to me saying this by saying this is a human topic, not a political topic. Mm -hmm. This is a matter of starting to think in this century 
of human beings on this planet, you know, many centuries, for us to think about our interrelationships in a new way, to just take another look. It doesn't matter if as a doctor you had odd relationships with a patient of a different culture or of a different race, or if you taught classes where you saw something that wasn't just right, so you made decisions about the other race based upon that, right? It's about a human topic. We're talking about skin pigmentation differences, <laughs> nothing more. And, and yet, having grown up there, with that being said, having grown up in small town Wisconsin, my exposure was minimal. My mom was from Madison. She went to school with a bunch of people uh, in high school who had been related to the university. She had some more exposure. I was fortunate enough to be exposed to that. Um, and you know, over time, by the time you get to your college training, your world expands a little bit more. And you, if you have an open mind to a life of learning, you will simply say, well, that's interesting. What are you about, right? And yeah. it is an obligation to the people who... In my opinion, it's an obligation to the people who have the majority skin colors to take a look back because everyone understands what the majority is about. Mm -hmm. And so, so uh, when we were in college at ICO in the early late 1980s and seeing patients that were black South Side patients, I was entirely unfamiliar and unprepared. And I heard right. the same conversations, and I regret even saying that I probably was a participant in those conversations right. about my differences with these folks and maybe not understanding somebody's way of speaking or something else, as opposed to being willing to sort of take myself to the next step and say, learn, and to not say, well, I'm not racist, but say, I'm anti racist. And I know, again, there's some political charging to this. And I'm sorry for going on a little diatribe in your interview, but I, I just can't support what your words are saying enough because it's we who have the responsibility to make the change. When I say we, I see people who look like me. Mm -hmm. And I'm never perfect. It's the constant uh, approach to change every day for the better. If you can find a way and I'm just so thrilled that the conversations now can be more open. And um, Adam, in my interview with Dr. Adam Ramsey and his Black Eye Care Perspective, which I know you've spoken with, uh, my goal is to exceed the 13% challenge on sandbox stories. Their, uh, their challenge is to have the percentage of representation of Black Americans in faculty, in admitted students, and ultimately in our doctor base, there's no reason why there shouldn't be that same commitment from my program. Um, and, uh, you know, I can't, um, I, I can't add my voice to yours any more loudly than I am right now. Uh, I will try, I will support you because I know there are a lot of listeners who are going to say, I will do the same. There are many who are saying, oh God, get on to another topic. And I say to you, please, please just take the time to listen and learn. You know, I, I appreciate you saying that because I, I think that you're, I think you're bang on. We're, we're in this together. You know, we're in this together, but there's only so much that any one group can do on their own. So we need to do this together, right? And and we're going to push and we're going to fight. And I mean, that's I, that's just who I am. I'm going to always fight for what I believe in um, and push for more, you know, always. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I what you've expressed to me is, I think, all that anybody's looking for. And that's a willingness to understand that there's a difference. It's not, again, I, I agree with you. I don't believe it's a political conversation. I believe that it's a human discussion. You know, we have some differences. Let's get past them and let's help everybody advance. It's just that simple. 
I don't see it as any more than that. So, so it's appreciated. That willingness is is all I can say for myself. That's all I've ever been looking for because I think that's what it's going to take for us all to get there. Yeah. Bless you on your efforts. Now, where I really have a problem with you is on your NFL team. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it's not green and gold, I don't know that it's worth it. But, uh, there are people on this who would listen would agree, but tell me about your favorite professional team and how, how you feel about them moving. So, so I have been a Raiders fan since I was a child. Um, I watched Marcus Allen uh, destroy the Washington Football Club uh, one night in January or February in 1983, and that's all it took. I heard Ronald Reagan say that uh, they were fearful that Marcus Allen was a lethal weapon and that Russia was concerned about him, and that was all I needed to hear. I was sold. The silver and black has been a part of me ever since then and always will be. It's, it's, a, it's a sickness, I think. So, so the last 20 years have been a big, big challenge for me. But um, with the exception of, of recent times, they seem to be doing pretty well. They're heading in the right direction. I'll say it that way. I'm, uh, I, I bleed silver and black. I, the move is, is bittersweet for me, I'll say, because, you know, so I became a fan when they were in Los Angeles. They ended up back in Oakland, which I was happy to see. Um, I'm just sick enough that I ended up, even though I'm Canadian, I got season tickets in Oakland. And so I would fly to Oakland and watch my Raiders play there. Um, and now with this move to Vegas, I, I'm, I'm very excited. The, the stadium is second to none. It's unmatched. It's a gorgeous facility. Um, the team deserves it, and a good organization deserves a good facility. But I did get to know the Oaklanders very well uh, in traveling down there so often, so I do feel for them to lose their team. But I hope that they have an opportunity to, to make it to Vegas to see, because that stadium is a sight to be seen. It's gorgeous. Well, one last time, would you give anybody one last bit of optometric practice advice that you always love to hand out? I'd love, I'd love to hear it. Oh, yeah, boy. Where to begin? As you've learned from this interview, I generally have a lot to say and I tend to ramble on. But, um, I, you know, I say the same thing with school as I would with the practice. I, I, I sort of relate everything back to my school. <laughs> like I said, I went to school for so long. And. I would say don't ever let anybody convince you that it's too difficult. You know, that's the message that I'm generally telling aspiring optometric students, um, people who are looking to open a practice, whether it's cold or acquiring somebody else's, people who are looking to expand their practice. I, I hear, I regularly hear this idea that, oh, you know, it's going to be really difficult to open cold, so maybe you shouldn't. Or it's going to be really difficult to get into optometry school, so maybe you should think about something else. Or it's going to be really difficult to expand your practice or buy out that next person. I, that's insane. I, I, that makes no sense to me at all. There, there is nothing that is too difficult. If it was too difficult, nobody would have done it before you. So why not you? Why not me? You know, there's, if there is something out there that you wish to achieve, the mark of your success is going to be your willingness to put your head down and go get it. You know, and again, that's maybe the football player in me, but you just got to put your head down and get it. If you want it, if you don't want it, that's okay. But if you want it, don't let anybody convince you with their words that your efforts will not be enough. Your efforts will be enough. It's you, only you will be able to control how much effort you can put in, and that's what will get you there. So that's, that's my regular message that I'm sharing probably almost every day. It's very much of a, of a coach, right? You get a lot of that from the coaching you've received and the coaching you give to your kids' teams and such. And, and it's 
it's this natural want to tell somebody that's in their comfort zone that good enough is fine, but better is is out there. And I think it's it's really easy for anybody who's listening to sort of say, well, here's another person telling me to go get it. But uh, what's the name of your practice if anybody wanted to find you? Yeah, so my practice is called Prairie Eye Care. So we're, where we live in Manitoba, we're smack dab in the middle of the prairies. And so, yeah, we are called Prairie Eye Care. Dr. Nana Owusu, I can't thank you enough for being a guest on this program. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And as always, to the audience who's listened, thank you for attending. Until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.